folks folks welcome to our episode 100 celebratory q a episode where we solicited questions from our listeners uh from our patrons also and are now going to answer them in a kind of grab bag fashion um I, I want to say one thing that I truly regret for our main episode was I was going to pose um, to us, to all of us, two potential titles for episode 100. The first was going to be, will it either be called Attack and Dethrone God? Or the other was going to be potentially a life for a life, immediate decapitation. But I dropped the ball on that. There's I, been some great memes coming out of this. I think those are both really strong options. Of course, uh, attack and dethrone God being one of the points <laughs> in the multi-point program of the Weather Underground. Yes. Which, yep. as we know, is still alive still and well. Yep, and still underground. And has been uh, planning these protests very behind underground. the scenes. <laughs> They've been very, very underground. And then a life for a life immediate decapitation was uh, probably the most based image that came out of solidarity protests during this revolt. It was two, I believe, in the in the on the tweet, it said that there were two Chinese American protesters, and the one of them was they were both in masks, like maybe gentlemen in their fifties, and the one guy was holding up a sign that said in both English and Chinese, presumably, just simply, a life for a life immediate decapitation, which is the most fucking based, epic thing that I've seen yet in this protest. Mindset. Hell yeah. I think the way that Baron Trump is going to be reincarnated as a lotus flower is the most based. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's based now. Everybody everybody is revolt-pilled now. Right? Oh, yeah. We were talking about how all of the... Um, we've talked about this before on the show, and, and it's a feeling you get in the crowd. It's also a feeling you get across society that, like, during periods where not a lot is happening during those like decades where weeks are happening it's pretty easy for to turn the the firing circle inwards and get really worked up about our differences and you know very sort of theoretical fine grade points about the world and what we want to see happen but it's certainly true that when a generalized struggle breaks out uh we all tend to kind of dissolve into this sort of active um active mass that's right right I was really scared when the Bernie campaign collapsed that um, the left was just immediately going to start eating itself again because I saw what DSA was like before we had the Bernie campaign to unite everybody. And uh, I was scared that was going to happen again. But now it seems that there's this new movement arising that's going to force people to get over their petty differences and work together. And it's not that the differences don't matter. They're real, like between MLs and fucking anarchists and left comms or whatever. But like the, the sniping and the carping just kind of tends to be, seem very unimportant. that people will not be getting over their petty differences. <laughs> uh, maybe they did a little bit last week, but uh, anyway, let's get to some questions. Yeah, let's get to some questions. Well, what do we got here? Uh, first, first question, the special Q&A episode. You know what, should we look at the ones on Patreon? Well, let's, I, I, let's look at the ones, ones on, the, the on the sheet. Yeah. The email, the email, what, what, the email. All right. Um, here's a question. I mean, just go in order, I guess. Sure. Um, I had a question about what could happen. This is from Isabel. Hi, Isabel. Thank you. Once more cities begin to start dismantling their police departments, like what just happened in Minneapolis, what do you all believe the risks are that come with dismantling a police department? I think this is a great thing that happened, but I also fear that private police forces are going to start popping up. 
What can we do to combat stuff like this from happening? And can you think of any other possible hardships that would come up that we would have to deal with when transitioning into a policeless society? That's a really good question. I think Jamie might be might be able to give the best answer to it. I'll say right off the bat that it's a, it's a real fear, uh, private police forces and mercenaries and shit. But that said, like, we already have those in abundance right now. You know, if you looked at Standing Rock, um, it was not just, like, the police and the National Guard trying to, like, violently throw out these protesters who were fighting heroically. It was also, like, international mercenary companies who were in there, like, shooting shit at people's faces and fucking them up. We've all seen the pictures from the last week of, like, private security everywhere and shit. It's already, it already exists, even with a highly militarized police force. So I don't, it could probably get worse, but, like, it's not like we don't already have a bad now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that this is not a demand that can be carried out in a vacuum while changing nothing else about society. So I've been seeing a little bit of fear mongering from people on the liberal left, even the socialist left saying, oh, well, if you defund public police departments, uh, rich people are just going to hire private militias. A, that's already happening. B, we also want to get rid of rich people. So (laughs) it's really part of a 10 point program that we have. Um, I think we also need like some kind of, uh, shall we call it a just transition program for cops? I don't know. Like a lot of the shrinking of budgets, a lot of the uh, steps we can take towards abolition are going to be reducing them by attrition, right? Cops quit. We don't hire more cops. Um, You shrink the number of cadets every year until it's zero. But um, I think it would definitely help because I've seen a lot of people also saying, oh, what about all the working class people of color, for instance, who, you know, for whom being a cop is one of the only decent middle class jobs? Well, um, we need more decent jobs for people so that they don't have to be cops in the first place. Right. We got to stop cops before they start. And I think if you gave people a choice uh, between being the violent arm of the state that is being asked to deal with every social ill that they are very ill-equipped to deal with or say, oh, you can make the same amount of money um, as a counselor or as a social worker or like playing basketball with kids or any of the numerous programs that we need to bring about if we're going to have a strong welfare state. Um, most non-psychopaths would probably choose to not be cops. Well, yeah, it's good that you qualify that with psychopaths because I think it's certainly the case the most violent and antisocial people possible are being drawn towards these positions of authority at this point in time. There are certain, like, a certain subsection of society, and just happens that many of them become cops, I guess for obvious reasons, that, like, will always be antisocial, will always have a problem with. And the trick is not to give them guns and nightsticks and send them out with, like, ultimate authority, uh, judge, jury, executioner, right? But to ultimately, like, take that power down so those bad apples, as it were, uh, aren't everywhere, right? That uh, it's not, police forces aren't filled with those people. So here's a related question here. I'm not sure I see right here who posed it, but it is, quote, How should we deal with police unions? While I personally believe that the pigs are not workers, 
Even more so class traders. Well, that's fucking based. I do still run into trouble with squaring the circle of advocating against police unions, as I myself am a trade unionist and have had this conversation many times with other trade unionists. I realize that regardless of whether or not my analysis is correct, arguing this is arguing this to less radical folks seems like an incredible inconsistency in my values. Very good question. Very timely, I think, right? So how are we going to argue that unions are good except for police unions? I think that's an argument that has to happen. I think that it's become more and more clear in Minneapolis, New York City, and elsewhere in the country that police unions are an extremely, extremely reactionary force, right? That police unions are part of this violent state apparatus that in many, many cases uh, has become autonomous from even the political structures, the bourgeois political structures that exist in municipalities and states and the federal government. It's like this monster that takes on a life of its own. These police unions fight for more funding. They fight to protect the cops from, you know, their own brutality, from being uh, prosecuted. Uh, they, They protect, like, they protect the police force from any meaningful change happening. So it's clear that like police unions are an integral part of why this uh, they must be abolished, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think the listener hit the nail on the head when they said that cops are class traitors. Right. Right. The, the police as an institution are not part of the proletariat. They are an instrument of class rule that exists to tamp down on the power of class struggle. And um, as soon as you join it, you become a part of that, whether you realize it or whether you want to be or not. So I don't know, like, it depends who you're talking to. You know, maybe you don't want to hit them with that right off the bat, or maybe you do. There's no other job in American society. There's no other police union that represents people who are directly protecting the bosses (laughs) Like by breaking up picket lines and letting replacement workers in and protecting private property. Except corrections officers, perhaps, right, who are helping to incarcerate people. These unions, police unions, are a very particular type of organization of, you know, basically protecting uh, class traders. So it's, it's a tough conversation to have, but I think it's important to note that the form that particular unions take that the, the form that unions take in capitalist society is very much determined by the contradictions of class society itself. And it's very unfortunate that the same word that we use for, like, fighting workers' organizations, unions, are the same we use for fighting class trader organizations. Yeah. And I think it's an important distinction to make. It's, not a, it's, it's a qualitative difference between these two types. Yeah. People have a lot of opinions on the professional managerial class, Right. Uh, I mean, you could say the cops are professional managers of class struggle. So uh, maybe look at them. Cops and Democrats should have their own union together. (laughs) (laughs) Andy, you got another uh, question to pose? Uh, Sure. Here's one from Mr. Lamp. Mr. Lamp. Hi. Uh, I love Mr. Lamp. I am new to podcast listening and received a public education in the USA. Can you do more theory and history episodes? Me opening a book is possible, but not probable. (laughs) Also, couldn't really search through your stuff very well. And so if you could just give me episode numbers, that would be awesome. Perhaps an index would be helpful. This this comes down to process and how we set up the show, which, to be honest with all you folks out there, is pretty chaotic. 
You know, we're all kind of chaotic individuals, and uh, there are some differences in what we're going to do. But I think that a good balance between kind of like topical and newsy type episodes on the one hand and theory and history episodes is good. We're trying to find that. And I think you see like whether it's prolet cult, whether it's history as a weapon, whether it's vampire castle even, like we all have these sort of more theoretical projects that we do. We're just like don't want to become a completely pedagogical podcast. That's yeah. like that that serves its place and that's a, a good thing, but we're trying to find the balance. Yeah, I think especially at the beginning, um, we were clashing a little bit in terms of our approach, and I realized it was because I come from a journalism background where you mainly ask questions, and Sean comes from a professor background where you mainly lecture. But uh, you know what? It takes all kinds to make a pod. It does, and now that we're at 100, we have a lot of them under our belt. And uh, I feel like we're doing great work. So let us know by email or whatever if you think the balance is correct or if it's something that we should change. But uh, I think we should all be pretty proud of the, the balance we've tried to strike. Yeah, and, and, and an index is not a bad idea. No, an say. index is a really good idea. People can search under, if they go to the, the Patreon website for our page, the site, there is like a search bar in there. And we try to label every single one like what they're about. So that's one way that you can do it. And unlike other podcasts, which like have two separate feeds, we make sure we post everything on the Patreon page. So you can search through the that. The Patreon search function is horrible, though. The Patreon search function is horrible, but, but it's there. <laughs> yep. So here's a question that I really like, and I kind of wish I'd prepared a little bit better for it, but maybe I'll think of some things in the moment. They ask, everyone talks about their societal vision for After the Rev, which is fine. But how do your everyday personal lives look in that society? A short two minutes of dreaming, envisioning, out loud, would be appreciated. Thanks for everything. It's appreciated at the strangest of times in the most peculiar of ways. Regards, Jason from Vancouver. Thank you, Jason. Okay, Andy, go. 120, 119, 118. (laughs) (laughs) You've got two minutes to envision. a day in the life, uh, I guess, after the revolution. What do you got? Well, I'd just be in my office writing polemics against other members of the Bureau as it suits, <laughs> you know, my interests within the bureaucratic regime. Right. And uh, occasionally I would go out to the balcony and make a speech to the masses. <laughs> and he's got a very particular vision of where he's going to be after that moment. Uh, I... I, I think it's a it's an interesting question. I, I think that like there's of course the famous Marx quote about fishermen and, and philosophy and all that philosophizing. A poster in the morning, right. a gamer in the afternoon. Famously detorned by Virgil Texas. Mm-hmm. But um I, I, I think like RIP. I think the cool thing about understanding a a world past capitalism is that there's no like right answer. Right. Except for Andy's because Andy's going to be in the in the Politburo. Right. But for the rest of us, there's no right answer, because one way to look at it is that the the time before communism, the time that we're living in now and all the time before that was merely a prelude. Right. In a sense, like history hasn't even started yet. History is this very determined life is a very determined experience for human beings, all the billions of us. But I think one I think touching and and, and interesting way to look at it is imagining um, that history will begin because we'll be able to make history, you know, 
however we want to make it. Our lives, of course, there will be necessary work to do, but I think it, it'll, it'll allow people to live the lives that, that they feel are most you know, accommodating to them, have the relationships they feel that are most accommodating to them, creating the human community out of the material of capital. I mean, that's a pretty obscure answer, but I think that anything, almost anything will go. So for me personally, um, before I got into this, uh, you know, Patreon leftist online grift racket, as uh, many people have accused me of, uh, I was a music and culture journalist. And then, you know, at a certain point in time, uh, politics took over my whole entire brain and my whole entire life. And I was really consumed by this project and just couldn't pay attention to anything else. If we finally did the thing, right, if we finally were to overthrow capitalism, um, that'd be fucking great. I might go back to writing about all the music and culture that uh, is being produced by people now that they've been liberated from the necessity of wage labor. You won't have to worry have about a, there being no money in it because money wouldn't be real. Exactly. They'd have more free time. I'd have more free time. Maybe I'd uh, even be in a band again. I used to be in a band. I used to be in several bands. So, uh you know, maybe that's not, uh, maybe it's no great loss uh, in the part of the world that I'm not in a band right now, but uh, you know what? I'll be the judge of that. Oh, yeah. And I would uh, I'd travel around and do whatever the fuck I want. There we go. Travel, yes. Travel is an important liberty that we have now that On, needs to uh, be generalized. All of, in the, any uh, all of the wonderful trains that we're going to build to link up the different parts of the world. I've got a question here that just came in from a guy named Peter. Uh, he is a union construction worker in Seattle, a loyal listener and lifetime anti-authoritarian. Hell he yeah. says, lately I've been obliged to work with straight-up centrist reformers such as union leadership, city council, local Democratic Party hacks at all. In light of the recent uprising... In the Seattle area, I find myself in the uncomfortable position of bringing forward ideas such as defunding police, removing police unions from labor councils, asking for removal of government officials from political party affiliation for malfeasance. How do you present these convictions of anti-authoritarian theory to an audience that is firmly rooted in maintaining some authority? How do each of you conduct yourselves in your respective roles as members of such institutions like unions or journalism? Good question, Peter. IBW Local 46 represent. What do you got? You Seems got like it? a Sean question. No, you said journalism too. I'll, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. I think it's it's tough, right? I think that you should always try to convince as many people as you possibly can of the right position, which is an anti-capitalist, anti-authoritarian position. Most times it's very, very difficult, and most times I don't even bother trying because if you have if you're working with a guy who's like a Trump supporter, which there's a lot in my local, if you work with somebody who's a racist, unfortunately there's a lot in my local as well. It's going to be very difficult to find any common ground and certainly to even discuss it without getting into a huge fight. So what I tend to do during normal periods, not moments of revolt like right now, is in casual conversations with people, try to tease out like why they believe what they believe, why their ideology has risen, what's, what's coming socially and personally for this person that makes them believe what they believe. 
And in doing so, you can not only get to understand them better as a person and as like a brother and sister or non-binary within your union itself, but uh, you can also help to understand the world better and how consciousness is created, uh, why class consciousness isn't there, but also the little sort of pinpricks in that ideology. Maybe it's they actually hate cops because cops arrested them for a drunken driving incident. Maybe it's that they're racist, but they actually have like... Uh, a nephew who's who's black and they're struggling with like how to you know square their racism with the humanity of their family member or close friend whatever it is there are these little moments where you can pick at and try to understand and and, and circumvent in little sort of ways these like this bad consciousness that exists and that's during like normal everyday shit i wouldn't go too far out on the limb and start yelling about police abolition like on the job site like you know 10 at 10 a.m like during coffee break or something like that on the construction site moments like this though are fascinating moments of revolt that we're in right now uh, when, when everything's happening all around us. It's not merely that other leftists all of a sudden stop fighting each other as much uh, because everybody's focused on the struggle and moving things forward. It's also that these are moments where the struggle itself does a lot of work to change the way that people feel about things, for better or for worse. It's a moment when new possibilities arise out of society, when people see other people struggling directly for their needs or, or struggling in solidarity with the people next to them. And these are material examples in the struggle itself of people changing their minds. So these are the perfect moments then to try to discuss what's going on and try to take our worldview, which is a holistic, a, a totalizing worldview, and try to gently sort of work off of that and know that ultimately people's minds are going to change one way or the other because these moments right now are when solidarities are created, when ideologies fall, and when uh, class consciousness is ultimately produced. Not for everybody, of course, but for many, many people. They're changing their mind, looking at the, the world in a new way right now, and I'm sure there's some uh, electricians out there who are doing the same. Yeah, and on the journalism tip, uh, we just need to abolish the liberal media, <laughs> oh, honestly. Yeah. Based. They are class enemies. Um, they're going to be trying to fucking make compromises with the fash until they get the wall. Yeah. Un up, literally up until their last moments. It won't be us giving them the wall, but they're going to get it regardless. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there are even some chances for uh, radicalization amid this moment for bootlickers like them, right? Because we've been seeing journalists getting arrested in the course of doing their jobs. And they're like, wait, what? I'm a journalist. Like, what of what, civil liberty? What about our? What about the Constitution? What about the First Amendment? And they're starting to realize that um, the cops and the fascists—they don't give a shit about those values. They only invoke them in the most cynical and disingenuous of ways. I mean, uh, a ton of people have canceled their New York Times subscriptions in the wake of that uh, Tom Cotton editorial, right. and he's fucking gloating about it right now. He's not like. Oh, how good of the New York Times to uh, to open themselves to all different perspectives, even ones they may not agree with. He's like, no, I fucking wrecked their shit and I'd do it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've seen this this sort of shift happening in real time as like a lot of preconceptions that libs have about how the world works, how the First Amendment's really important. Yeah. Meet a uh, cop's truncheon, right? Yeah, maybe... They, uh, they're having reality beaten, beaten over the, their own heads at this maybe point. Maybe our beloved institutions are not as strong as folks thought. 
Indeed. Shall we do another question? Or Andy, did you have anything on that? No. Andy's just thinking about uh, how sitting up in his, in his uh, Politburo uh, office, he can just look down upon the rest of you and laugh at your ideological struggles. <laughs> he is pure. So uh, here's a good one. Yeah, throw, throw one to us. Okay, here's one from uh, Kay from Florida. What are your thoughts on the cool zone? Oh, are shit. we in it? What would it take to say we're in it? How do we navigate it? Damn, I feel, why are you guys looking at me for that? <laughs> well, we should perhaps begin by explaining what the cool zone is. Who wants to do that? may not be in the know. Somebody, somebody accused me of having invented the cool zone, but I did not do it. Wow, it that's a... Uh, it was Sean Morehouse, I think the guy's big, name is. Big old compliment. Yeah. Well, there was a tweet that went pretty viral, right, when they said uh, when unemployment hits 30% and the public's faith in institutions is at an all-time low, you enter what historians refer to as the, the cool, cool zone. zone. And it's not necessarily cool to be in it, although it is kind of exciting. I'm, I, I've got mixed feelings about being in the cool zone, but it's definitely cool to study it as a part of history because it's when major shifts tend to happen. Yeah, there's like, as somebody who's historically oriented, I've been thinking a lot recently over the last 10 days or so about how people, how all of us experience time, <laughs> how all of us experience history. Because that famous quote, right, there are decades in which weeks happen and weeks in which decades happen, is no truer than in a moment like this. Um, we're drawn to the cool zone always because when we look back on history, we see um, ruptures happening. Uh, it, see, it feels as though for all of my life, you know, not even adult life, going back to when I was a kid, that there has been this sort of eternal presence, right? You can call it capitalist realism. I don't, I don't know. You call it like stasis, right? It seems as though even though things are happening, there is no break with the order such as it is, which is not true. It's just that history is moving very slowly, and there seems to be a sort of equilibrium, a punctuated equilibrium, equilibrium that's created. This, of course, is tied to the equilibriums that are created under capitalism, which is why I think... It's been really good recently that we've been looking at the tendency of the rate of profit to fall because I think so much of why we're in a cool zone right now is because there's a sort of determinant quality to how capitalist society runs. Without a sufficient rate of profit, you start to see things getting real cool real fucking fast because all, the entire society is predicated on the reproduction and so the social reproduction of capitalism, of capital and the classes. A cool zone is when you start to see that reproduction break down and you start to see historical actors, human beings like ourselves, being able to actually play a role in this very cool zone of history. So I think we're in that now. Uh, I, I think that there's no going back now. I think that eternal present has been ruptured. And living in the cool zone, you know, as we said, is not the funnest thing in the world. It's actually very frightening. There's a lot of hope, but also a lot of fear and trepidation right now. But it, it feels different. It does feel like we're living through history right now. And maybe that's what it feels like to live in the cool zone. Yeah, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we do know that neoliberal capitalism is drawing to a close. It's had a pretty... <laughs> One way or the other. <laughs> One way or the other. Um, and we don't know what's going to come after. You know, it could, capitalism could reorder itself into something even shittier. Or, you know, capital, 
capitalism as we know it could give way to some sort of uh, neo-feudal authoritarian nightmare, or we could get to what I like to think of as a cool world, right? I was talking with a friend the other day about how, uh, you know, maybe instead of communism, we should just call it something nicer, like cool world without the historical baggage, Um, you know, a world that's built around human needs where everyone's free to have sex with busty cartoon characters at their leisure. (laughs) And that's like something that's, it really keeps me going. War is made legal. (laughs) All right, some great questions so far. Let's let's move to another one. One that I think is on a lot of people's mind right now. A lot of Antifada super soldiers out there are thinking about this one from Tyler. Tyler asks, with Trump looking to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization, how do we avoid a third red scare? What practical tips do you all have in avoiding state infiltration in our organizing? And how can we stay safe on an individual level? We're going to, I think, throw this to InfoSec Andy, who might have some, uh, some, some interesting things to say about this. Well, you can tell just by how Barr has translated that Trump's Antifa terrorist designation that they're working on investigating groups that they call Antifa or Antifa-like, so probably anarchist leftist groups. They want to uh, single out certain people they think are leaders, and you know, there's been cases of them visiting and harassing people for the last year or so, and I think we can expect a lot more of that now. Um, now... I don't think it's imminent that they're going to like round up anyone who's ever called themselves Antifa or been an Antifa demonstration or like people who just write about Antifa or talk about it like us. Uh, But obviously the more uh, pressure that's put on the state from people with revolutionary goals like abolition, the more there's going to be repression against those people. So although Trump and Barr might not be ready to, round up people purely based on their politics right now um, does not mean that that won't happen when, you know, something like an insurrection gets closer, uh, like things were really heating up in this last week. Um, So, um, but anyway, I I wrote a a sort of like a critical supportive essay about Antifa called, you can just Google it, it's called Anti-Anti-Antifa. That, in that article, I look at the history of Antifa and how it's different today, and also, you know, what it achieved in 2017 and, like, sort of stopping the momentum of the alt-right street movement, but how just focusing on alt-right actors, you know, although they're useful in certain ways, is not necessarily a politics into itself, and that Antifa needs to evolve into doing better and bigger things, which I think most people have done from that. So uh, that said, I think that Antifa as a brand has kind of run its course in this moment. Um, I don't think it's, you know, the fact that Trump wants to talk about Antifa and not talk about the actual protagonists of this movement. He wants to fictionalize Antifa as a scapegoat indicates that when people call themselves Antifa and do things as Antifa in an identifiable way, that the, the right kind of likes that, like that's beneficial to them. So I'm not saying don't do those things, just maybe the Antifa brand isn't the, the best way to do it right now. Yeah, and I, I, there's the, the, the part of the question about a third red scare too. And if you look at 
uh, the first two Red Scares, right? So we're talking about the, the late teens into the uh, 1920s, uh, then certainly McCarthyism in the 1950s. Like, why, why did those arise at the time that they did? They arose, of course, because there were powerful left voices. These were times directly after, like, global conflicts, right? And, like, the working class and its organs had become part of a coalition of society, whether they were unions and radicals in the cities in, like, the early 20th century, or whether they were communist unionists and intellectuals in the middle of the history. They were part of a coalition that came through that, and ultimately that portion had to be smashed. They had to be removed from society. And so the Red Scare was a reflection of a reactionary uh, ruling class attempt to not just physically suppress and take away the freedom of radicals, but to try to eliminate their influence throughout society. Unfortunately, at this point in time, we're not that influential. The left is not that influential. It's not like there are true anti-capitalists. There are a lot of libs, but there's not like true anti-capitalists in control of the unions, in positions of power across the country. So unfortunately, or fortunately at this case, I'm not sure that it is, it is, they, they need to have a new Red Scare, a kind of generalized terror across the U.S. population to kick leftists out of everyday life. Yeah, I mean, one interesting thing uh, that I've been thinking about, everyone's like throwing around the F word a lot, right? Like Trump is a fascist. This is fascism. Fascism has historically been a response to uh, credible challenges from the anti-capitalist left to capital. And that just doesn't exist right now. So maybe this is sort of a fascist adjacent thing that is developing. Post-fascist, some people I, call it. I just think, it, I mean, it's certainly authoritarian, but um, until the left poses a really credible challenge, I don't see us getting uh, any kind of traditional fascism. I think the way that our government is set up is fascist enough already on its own, and it would take a lot. I mean, they're trying. Our institutions are not as strong as uh, people thought they were. But, um, yeah, I think think it would take a lot. I think uh, Trump especially is just too fucking lazy to really – transform into a proper fascist unless something was really going down. Yeah, and I I think, too, like, real quick, and then we'll go to another question. We should not assume, right, in this age of chaos and revolt, that the way that the left organized itself in the past is necessarily the way an anti-capitalist movement's going to organize itself in the future. I'm not, I don't want to get full communization here, right? But (laughs) partially, anyways, like, there is something that has shifted, right, in the way that, um, you know, powerful leftist forces have went from the government and within the trade unions now to the streets. Um, so the power, the, the reason behind a red scare, which is eliminating us from the, from the uh, institutions of power, might be unnecessary at this point because power is different now. It seems like the conditions that create leftist movements are more diffuse and spread through society. But it's always a danger of... Um, thinking that the past will always be a replay because this revolt, which happened all over the country with tens, hundreds of thousands of people happening in it and the millions upon millions of people who support that doesn't look like anything really that's happened over the last hundred years. And we shouldn't expect it to because we're in different conditions right now, different modes. Should we do another? Yeah, we've got, um, we've gotten a lot of questions about internationalism and the role that America could play 
in uh, global socialism. Sure, Go with that. sure. So here's two questions. I'll combine them. So somebody writes, sorry, I don't have your name on here. I would love to hear some thoughts slash speculation on whether America has the potential to play a non-antagonistic role in the development of global socialism or whether America falling into internal chaos and GDP collapse is actually the best thing for our species as a whole. Can there be a viable revolution in the global imperial core or are we all revolutionary defeatists now? Mm. And um, we've gotten a lot of questions along these lines. I'll just read one more of them. Um, this person asks, what would the world look like if the evil empire, <laughs> a.k.a. America, I added those Ks, actually was a full-on left-wing nation? What would the international impact be compared to our current one? I, I, I think, like, revolution needs to be international. So as much as removing United States imperial power would be, like, the, the boot off the necks of social movements around the world, I think... They would find other boots as long as global capital, because global capitalism isn't like purely a product of America. Right. It's just the logic of capital is totally detached from any one nation state or any alliance of certain nation states. So imperial anti-imperialism has its place, obviously, but it's not the the whole game. Yeah, and let's. Um, uh, Moisha Postone calls anti-Americanism the anti-imperialism of fools because people are so eager to jump on and say that if only American power was, you know, were gone, that you know, all of a sudden things would spring up everywhere. It's simply not true. I think that in the more general sense, right, we're seeing without us, quote unquote, doing anything right now, we're seeing the decline of the United States as an imperial power. And it's not because we're doing it. It's not like Barr and Trump say it's like Antifa's destroying America. There is a deep rot at the center of this society. Ultimately, we argue, coming out of the laws of motion of capitalist accumulation and uh, rate of profit that has fallen very, very far. But it takes a lot of different forms, social, political, ecological, uh, this collapse of the United States. So in a sense, it's, it's, you have to separate, I think, America from America as the imperial power from the class system in America and see that the imperial power of the United States relies on the continued growth and stability of the United States as a country. And it's pretty clear that that stability is going bye-bye. So I think almost organically, as the United States starts to decay, disintegrate, deteriorate, you're going to see a lot less ability for the U.S. empire to, we've seen this already, to kind of throw its weight around in the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, it's not happening yet, right? America is still a global power, but it is definitely showing signs of being in decline. And like you talked about on your Ariki episode with uh, Terrence, Um, These things go in cycles. Um, World systems theory tells us that, um, you know, no empire lasts forever. But as long as we still live within the logic of a global capitalist system, there's going to be another power that arises to um, fill the vacuum. And it's looking more and more like that's going to be China. China. And, you know, there are some third worldists out there. There are some, uh, I don't know what, what, what I would call them, tankies maybe, sure. who think that it will be ultimately progressive to have China as the world power and U.S. as the fallen one. Um, that is wrong. I do not <laughs> tend to agree with that. Um, I think I'm, a, I'm afraid that we're going to get into a war with China, either probably a cold one, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe a hot one. 
Um, I, I do have certain fantasies about like some 1917 scenario where we get into a losing war with China and that's what touches off the rev in the U.S. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, but it is it is important, I think, to not uh, write off the U.S. working class as a potential engine of revolutionary struggle just because we are in the developed world um <clears throat> we gotta i mean at the end of the day we need a full-on global proletarian revolution and that means that yes this state needs to fall it also means all states need to fall right all of them mean all of them and um, re replacing u.s imperial power with uh, Chinese imperial power is not going to implement the kind of global socialist utopia that some people seem to think. Right. And I would just add before we go to, I'm going to put two questions together uh, here uh, that are, that are related to each other. Um, we've never seen May 68 in France was the closest we ever came to it, but we've never seen a proletarian revolution break out in the capitalist core before. Not like a true self-organized working class revolt that eliminates state power and begins to create communism. Like we've seen little dribs and drabs, but never anything that's successful and, and won. We don't even know what that looks like, right? We, we don't even know what that would look like. We can presume to know what it would look like. But what we're asking to do is the most difficult thing that any group of human beings have ever done in history <laughs> and certainly like we're seeing the ways in which potentially the u.s could fall and that's something that we want but let's be a little humble when we talk about how that could possibly happen um i do think that if um the u.s somehow went communist it would have a huge ripple effect around the world oh, sure obviously no. sure but um Hopefully, like we're not going for the kind of hegemony that, say, the USSR had in its region, right? We want something more, more liberatory, shall we say, more in the uh, the lower left-hand quadrant <laughs> of the stupid compass. Of the of the stupid compass. Let me um, real quick this question. I'm not sure who it's from, but they're asking about us doing episodes on the settlement houses and mutual aid societies in the late 19th, early 20th century. Some love for Jane Addams, Lucy Parsons, Emma Goldman. Great question. I think we should do that. We should talk about those movements and how like self-organized shit helped to create social security and like all sorts of national programs. So we will get on that. And then before we get to the spiciest of all questions, we're going to do a kind of double hit right here. Uh, two listeners with very similar questions. The first is, I'd love it if you could talk about how to get more involved and get more shit done locally. I've joined my local DSA, but the meetings feel aimless. Everyone is white. And when I asked how we could collaborate with other organizations to diversify our membership, it was dismissed by leadership. I'm looking for other orgs in my area, including Jewish Voices for Peace, but I was wondering what advice you veterans, that's nice of you to say, would give to a noob trying to do more than pay dues. Then we'll pair that one with this one right here, which is how do we support the liberation of black people in our country? I am concerned that there will be a bunch of liberal reforms that lead to a re-legitimization and strengthening of the system as it exists now. Do you think the ruling class will co-op Black Lives Matter, or will they try to crush the movement? So both of those are questions about how we interact, how we organize ourselves, part of the broader left. So who, who's, who's got an answer for that? The answer for that. Well, 
I mean, the uh, the separation of the organized uh, socialist left from the wider working class is a historical problem. It is not unique to the DSA, although the DSA is the largest socialist organization in the country. So we get a lot of the heat for it. Um, it's a re- it's a million dollar question. Right. It's basically a question about how we go from being a fairly marginal set of voices and a fairly small, unrepresentative slice of the working class to being the entire proletariat, because we're going to need a fuck of a lot more people on board if we're ever going to win. I don't have a perfect answer to this question. It may or may not surprise you. Anything that puts people in contact with more of their neighbors in the community where they live is going to be good, right? That's why mutual aid is so important. It's not just important in terms of, you know, staying alive because the working class can't fight if people are dying left and right or if they're just totally immiserated. Um, It's important to regrow social bonds, find out what the struggles are in your community, because a lot of white leftists live in, and not just white leftists, but this like sort of PMC activist uh, milieu, activist milieu, right? Of downwardly mobile millennials. A lot of folks um, are living in neighborhoods where they did not grow up. So just even just going to like a local community board meeting, get a sense of the struggles that are already happening in your neighborhood. Try and meet people introduce yourselves um because like the perceptions of dsa in various communities are mm, like i'd say a lot of people just don't aren't even aware that we exist because we're just not that we're not that special (laughs) we're not that important right now or if they are aware that we exist they're like oh they're just a bunch of like bougie white leftists or whatever so even if we can't totally Um, change the makeup of DSA, and I think we should still try, and not just DSA, but the entire socialist left, we can at least be perceived as people who care about the world around them and the people around them and um, people who kind of know what they're doing and don't just go into a place in a really tone-deaf way and say, like, here's what we're going to do for you. You got to ask questions. You got to listen. I don't know. You got anything, guys? Andy, yeah, I think if, uh, you know, if the DSA is not right for you or the, those other groups that you've looked at aren't right for you, I mean, that's okay. Like, uh, political power doesn't come from these political organizations. They, it comes from workplaces and, like, the people, you, your neighbors and, like, your block. So I don't know where you work or where you live, there's, but, like, I would say try to start there, you know. Try to figure out what the vulnerabilities at your workplace are, what the gripes are. Try to agitate around that. Try to see how you can make things better there or in your building or on your block. Um, you don't have to do everything as like every, – not everything needs to go from like zero to communist revolution. Uh, you just need to build power with the people you're around – you can do that by finding people that are ideologically aligned with you or do that with people who aren't ideologically aligned with you but are your neighbors and are materially aligned with you, preferably you know, your working-class neighbors. Uh, again, I don't know a ton about your situation. Now, the question about um, like being in an all-white group, it sucks to be in an all-white group. I wouldn't want to be in that group, uh, but uh, that's often just going to be the case, and 
there needs to be a balance made of why it's all white, uh, what you're lacking by, you know, if you want to take part in the, the, the uprising right now, what's lacking from not having black membership um, or having black leadership. Uh, and you got to have some accounts of why it is that way. Um, now, moving more towards the second question of supporting black liberation, black liberation means a lot of things to a lot of different black people. Uh, and so it's important to take make a study of that tradition. It's a long tradition. And the groups today don't necessarily reflect perfectly any of those tendencies. So, again, it's important to have allies that are black to, to learn from them. I, I don't want to assume that this question is coming from a white person. But if it is, white people shouldn't just purely engage in black liberation struggles as someone who's in solidarity with them and wants to get rid of racism because racism's wrong. We should understand that white supremacy also hurts working class white people. It's a false promise from the bourgeoisie that uh, white working class people will have it better if they uh, align against working people of color. And, you know, you could argue it's marginally better, but the position of the working class in this country in terms of power, in terms of wealth, is declining, just like it is for people of color. So it's a false promise, white supremacy. And, it's in, and the only way to fight it is not only with an interracial struggle, but also uh, with a recognition that we're not just doing it because it's a, the moral thing to do or the nice thing to do, but it's also in white people's interest as well. I couldn't, I couldn't say it any better than that. Uh, you guys nailed it. Let's, uh, let's finish out now with the spiciest of all oh spicy questions. We're... Uh, we don't usually bring up this person, but I think this is fun to do. Um, we are posting cringe on the timeline with this. So here's the question. I don't see, any, see who asked it, but okay. <clears throat> I assume this is a lie, but in a podcast, Amy Therese said Jamie had a living human toilet to shit in his mouth. That doesn't even make sense. Uh, and that he would get shit on at parties. Is this true? Hmm. I wonder. This is a real leading question. Like, how long have you been beating your wife for? <laughs> well, you know, um, as, as Amy Therese has correctly pointed out, I come from a liberal Jewish family. And um, I couldn't rebel in any of the normal ways that people might rebel against their conservative family, right? Uh, Worshipping Satan or being uh, in a polycule or something like that. So I had, to, I had to get a little creative with it. And how I got creative with it was by throwing uh, decadent toilet orgies <laughs> as part of my um, radical, anarcho-liberal, neoliberal, I should say, yes. um, lifestyle politics. A rad, rad lib Where the more, um, the more depraved you are, and the more radical you are, right? So if you're queer, you know, that's okay. If you're queer and trans, that's like much better. Right. If you're queer, trans, uh, POC, and vegan, that's like starting to get somewhere. But um, the most important thing is that you're sexually depraved <laughs> at all times. Well, I, I got to say the results of this, your um, sallow uh, 100 days of Sodom parties were, were really incredible. I, I, I got to say those, those sallow. Yeah, well, um, I mean, we were talking about what we would do in an ideal world after the rev, you know. Um, <laughs> and I would also like I used to throw some really lit parties and I would probably uh, go back to doing that as well. I think I have a, I think I have a skill. For uh, bringing people together, making fun stuff happen, 
So, uh, I don't think you can get out of this question though, by like finding and, and relating the rational kernel within the shit posty shell of this. I mean, you, you say you throw these parties, you had sallow parties, right? Uh, you had parties that are banned parties that went up against bourgeois morality in every single way. In fact, helped to undermine proletarian virtue. Right, that was your your point was to undermine yep. working class uh, norms and abolish virtues. the family. Abolish the family, but where did they get this from? Is it true that you may or may not have had a gimp at one of your parties? Oh well, okay. So this is actually a, a funny perversion of a story that I probably should not have told on Girls Chat, but uh, you know I was doing whippets. But that Girls Chat episode probably shouldn't have happened. That was that was a hundred percent Sean. Uh, I was always a little unsure. As to whether it was a good idea. It was a mess. It was not a good idea, but I, I no regrets. But um, no, I told a story about how, you know, I used to throw these parties and I would find gimps on Craigslist. Um, As one does. I, I, I was looking to add like some kind of era, so, some aura, some air of like sexual uh, spookiness to the haunted sex dungeon in the basement. One year, I got a gimp on Craigslist. Um, he was not a human toilet. He was no. just a regular... Regular sub. I did not see any shit entering anybody's mouth. And there was, uh, you know, stuff for people to smack him with. And everyone had a really good time. He had a good time. He had a great um, time. He he's was, our friend now. He was super happy he, afterwards. He turned out to be, like, a really cool guy who just liked to, you know, get smacked with a paddle once in a while. But um, I think the thing the, that this rumor came from is that I said um, my one of my posts must have ended up on some sort of, like, toilet slave message board at one point in time, because I was getting a lot of replies from people, a lot of emails from people who wanted to be the human toilet of my party. And I joked about it a little bit because one of my friends was really like triggered by it. Mm. He was like, if, I, I was like, oh, well, that could solve the problem where we don't have enough bathrooms. <laughs> and he was like, if you, if, you have a, if you have a human toilet, I'm not even going to come. So like... Of course, I'm not going to stop once he said that. Like, I was just, I was fucking with him. Yeah. I was fucking with him. I was like, oh, well, you know, if you don't come, I'm still going to have a good time. And the human <laughs> toilet is still going to have a good time. But um, in the end, I did not, in fact, hire the services of a human toilet. Yes, no corporophilia. Uh, I, I think that particular year, I got a, a foot guy. Oh, yes. To the, give the foot, uh, foot rubs to all of the ladies at the party. Because... And, and that man's name, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was real nice. Like, who doesn't want a foot rub when you've been walking around in high heels all night long? I just think, you know, that, that it's interesting in light of this story to see what other people's, like, concerns and predilections are. Like, um, how in somebody else's mind or, like, this, this group of people's minds... Uh, this blows up into a major concern that people must talk about on the socialist left that represents something, right? This sort of consensual gimp activity represents something way more than what it actually is, which is just like people being weird and having fun. I think it's, it's odd. Um, I don't know how productive it is, but I'm glad we were able to answer the question because uh, clearly corporophilia is on everybody's mind right now on the left and how we relate to that, how we subvert the aversion to um, human toilets in capitalist society. Because ultimately, that's what freedom is. Freedom is the power to shit in somebody else's mouth uh, with no consequences and do it consensually. That's right. All right, guys. I think that's good. 
All right, everybody, thank you. Episode 100 bonus. Uh, we're going to keep this up. Thank you, everybody, as always. And we'll be back soon.